0: Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines. My name is Erin Christensen and I'll be your host today. On this episode, we're unpacking what it means to put well-being at the heart of economic decision-making. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting us at Beyond the Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Today is a special collaborative episode with the David Suzuki Foundation. I sit down with two of the David Suzuki Foundation's ecological economists, Yannick Boudouin and Michelle Molnar, to discuss how we can adjust our economic thinking to address critical issues of our time. Our conversation steps outside the realm of traditional economic models to discuss how we can address the pressing reality of climate change through reorienting modern economies to promote human prosperity, which thrives in balance with the Earth's biophysical limits. Today we identify an opportunity emerging for Canada to lead the way in innovating a new well-being economy designed to benefit people and nature. Yannick is the Director General of the Ontario and Northern Canada Division at the David Suzuki Foundation. He holds a Master of Arts in Economics for Transition, a PhD in Marine Geology, a Master of Science in Marine and Economic Geology, as well as a Bachelor of Science in Geology. Yannick's expertise is in the economics for transition to socially and ecologically sustainable societies, social innovation processes, and transformational leadership. Michelle is also an environmental economist and policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Economics and Philosophy, as well as a Master of Arts in Public Policy and a Master of Arts in Philosophy. Michelle's expertise is in ecological economics and eco-assets, policy analysis, public outreach, and natural capital. Before I bring on Yannick and Michelle, I'd like to give some context on what we'll be covering today. Governments around the world have relied almost exclusively on gross domestic product as a measure of a population's overall economic health. By gross domestic product, I mean the total monetary or market value of all the final goods and services produced within a country's borders. There is a growing interest among policymakers and researchers to go beyond GDP. Today, we're talking about how we can reframe our economic thinking to align with the Earth's natural limits and boundaries. To unpack this topic, I'm very excited to be joined today in the studio with Michelle and Yannick. Welcome to the show, you two. Thank you. Thank you. Before we dig into the details of well-being economics and the potential policy pathways, I'd like to start from the beginning. So how did our growth obsession start? So if
1: we go back to the 1930s, as a country, we we didn't know how much we were producing. We had no measures of national productivity. Of course, in the 1930s, you know, we had the Great Depression, which was an issue here in Canada, as it was in many other countries. And um, we had a very large unemployment rate. Our, Our productivity was low. We were experiencing that in the same way that the U.S. was. So we actually brought in an individual to to provide some metrics to help us understand um, how as a country we were starting to increase what we could do to track our productivity and ideally to increase um, employment levels. So he came up with a measure. Um, At that time, it was Gross National Product, GNP. It's become GDP with slightly different ways to measure them, but we won't go into those details. World War II came along um, and we started using those measures and in a weird sort of way it really helped <laughs> with the success of the U.S. and allies in the war and really although one of his big flags as the, the creator of these these metrics was that it's not a measure of well-being, we've started slowly over time adapting um, that measure, what's become GDP, you know, as our key metric for well-being.
2: And I think maybe adding to that is that, that the most powerful piece there is the word created. People created this. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was some kind of love nature that come down to say this is how you do economics. So we had, of course, these, those different moments in, in time and moments in history were faced with a challenge. You had academics that came together and tried to figure out solutions for that challenge. Of course, they were coming from one particular singular cultural perspective and, you know, kind of poured their heart into that. And then, of course, after the war, not only are you happy with how that tool kind of directed things, but you figure, well, this is simple enough. You know, um, let, let's see. We don't want another war, right? We don't, we don't like that. So let's see. How do we make sure there's going to be world peace and, and all that? Well, the theory went, if you trade more between nations, you ensure uh, you know, a bit of a peace going on. And for all intents and purposes, that's been proven correct. There hasn't been another world war. So the intent was different. So sometimes when people point the finger back at that time and say, oh, they didn't know what they were doing, and they're bad people. And I'm like, Absolutely not. They were living in a different context, facing a different challenge. But I think some of that, that powerful piece there is really about the word, we created this, people did this. very small amount of people actually created it. And in the end, right after the Second World War, they all got together in three weeks and institutionalized the whole thing. So whenever somebody says he can't change that, he's like, well, in three weeks, no smartphones, no internet. You know, we did this.
0: Michelle, I'll direct this question to you. What would you say the core problem is with simplifying how well a country is doing just based off of GDP?
1: That's a good question.
0: Well, part of the problem,
1: I think, is that we've realized since that time that nature is not a scarce resource you know in the 1930s we thought nature was limitless the topic that economists address is how to allocate scarce resources so it made sense that the economy wasn't going to address nature which we thought was limitless at that time also i think our our education system was very reductionist so we didn't recognize kind of the interdependencies and the connections between different aspects of our lives. We thought we could completely separate economics from science, from social justice, from... um, and, And I think... Definitely, since that time, not only have we come to realize that we can deplete nature, um, but we've also realized that there's really strong connections between how well you're doing economically, to social issues, to health, um, to to a range. You know, we've have started to realize how interconnected all of these different aspects are, and um, by focusing just on economics, you know, we we group developing and undeveloping countries according to their GDP. Whereas you'll go to countries that are supposedly developing and you'll see um, really vibrant, healthy societies. People who,
0: who have a very different
2: conception of how to live life.
0: Do you think that our current economic system is causing climate change?
2: So I mean you can you can look at our economic system as the basic operating software for our societies. You know, we we cite, like to separate these things, like Michelle was saying, that economics is here, social policy is here, environmental policy is somewhere else. But at the end of the day, the interconnection points becomes how we interface with our natural world and also with each other. And that is really at the basis of of economics. So if your goal, you know, the basic algorithm of system is how quickly can you convert nature or resources to money using the cheapest possible labor. So that is the essence algorithmically of GDP. Um, It's not that it's wanting to cause something like climate change. It just it has no idea that there's a planet with the climate, and it has no idea there are actually people. Remember, cheap labor, factors of production, consumption, that's not humans, that's not people. So you have an algorithm that kind of got started in the 1940s moving forward, kind of took on a bit of a life of its own, and we're always then playing environmental catch-up and social catch-up, mainly because that system doesn't know those two things exist, and yet it's the dominant decision-making force that we have.
1: To add to what Yannick said, which I think is um, really important and valid, I would also say the way that we, we measure GDP really supports <laughs> the use of, of cheap energy and doesn't really explicitly account for things that detract from well-being, which is something like climate change. So the more, the more climate is changed as a result of the way – that we process goods and services, it's an increase in GDP whenever you you have to spend money. And that could be spending money for, for something positive, but also a lot of negative things, right? So recognizing that our GDP, the way it's structured, doesn't really recognize goods and bads. So it supports anything that drives up the cost and, any activity that's based upon cheap energy.
0: Can either of you two provide me with some examples of GDP being a bad measure?
1: So one of my friends who wrote a book called What is the Economy for Anyway? has a really great story and I hope I do it justice. So he talks about, um, he, he recounts this story to get at kind of the deficiencies in our metrics and he talks about someone Who's going to work in the morning? They get caught in a huge traffic jam where you know cars are stalled. Think of think of the 401 outside of Toronto, you know, kind of at rush hour where cars are running. We're polluting you know, the environment. That's increasing GDP because you're burning gas. Let's say you know you get out of the traffic jam finally and you get into an accident. Um, so your car's written off. That's going to increase GDP further because, you know, you're, you're bringing in a tow truck driver, you're paying to have your car repaired. Let's say, you know, you, your horrible day <laughs> continues and um, your wife hears about, you know, this, this car accident, she files for a divorce that's further increasing gdp you get home you're distracted by everything that's going on there's a fire in your kitchen and your house burns down and he says congratulations you've had a stellar gdp day because all of that activity has just increased, um, you know, our economic growth indicators. But when you step back and look at it from a human perspective, that's a horrible day. So, I, I you know, that was one story that kind of always sticks with me. And yeah, sure. so I do have to...
0: To say that 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 came from David Badker, <laughs> thank yeah. you, David. Yannick, do you have any stories that come to mind?
2: Yeah, there was a similar one in uh, Iceland with the um, the difference between caring the actual quality of caring and how we are human beings and nannies right when you you, you pay for someone to take care of your child there's a transaction there go GDP goes up and employment and all that um, uh, but at the end of the day I think if, a couple of years ago I think all the mothers went on strike for one day just to show that if the nannies go on strike caring still can happen we, we are people who will care for our kids and all that if a, if the mothers or the parents go on strike for a day, civilization stops. And so that interesting piece, again, between what is actually more valuable, right? So from the human perspective, the act of caring, love, and compassion is priceless. It's immeasurable. But it's absolutely useless from a GDP perspective. You want to make sure that you have long-term care and you're paying for the long-term care. You have uh, your your nannies for your, your children as long as it's paid, all that stuff. So it's an interesting, again, because not because the intent is bad or negative, there's just no ability for a tool like that to discern between the things that are, as Robert Kennedy once famously said, you know, things that are actually meaningful in our lives that make life worth living, none of that can be counted by a tool like that. And yet we have the potential to do all that counting if we wanted to, but we're just stuck in that old kind of thinking.
0: So when we humanize GDP, we reveal its deficit Uh, in organizing our society to just maximize GDP. So shifting from GDP, what is well-being economics? That's a big question, or what are the pillars that really hold up well-being economics and make it what
2: it is? Well, and I think there's no one thing that is well-being economics, right? That's something we have to also be careful not to follow the same path that happened with growth economics or GDP economics, where a very prescriptive model was developed and the whole world must fit that model. When you go into the space of well-being economics, you're trying to reverse engineer. What is it you want at the end of the day? So if somebody says, oh, you know, we want growth, what growth do you actually want, right? And usually the answers are pretty much universal. They're all about qualities, right? We want you know, the quality of our education, the quality of our health, the quality of our lives from that point. There could be differences across cultures, across geographies, and that's the beauty of well-being economics. There's no one standard. So if in Canada, maybe different regions might slightly define it differently, then you start to engineer and design the tools necessary and useful to measure that particular form of well-being. So you know, you were us- we were using examples a bit earlier about New Zealand and Iceland. These are countries that are starting to go down that path of realizing the limitations of a very old tool and the beauty of what that could mean if you were applying it these new tools, well-being, and defining that. What does it mean for our country?
0: Can we have a growth-based economy and a healthy and vibrant society at the same time?
2: So that's obviously a very nuanced question, right? Because we... In Canada, we have a very specific definition. When we hear the word growth, we're still thinking material growth. And and policymakers will still have and juggle this kind of belief that you can get to some kind of a safe climate or a healthy environment and protect this growth cake too, right? You know, have your cake and eat it too. And what's fascinating then is that when you start to dig into what are you trying to grow, right? Um, and that's the questions that aren't often very asked. And I'm always reminded of a bit of an analogy, you know, what's the one thing uh, in nature that tries to physically grow forever? And in some cases you get an answer, but, in, you know, people start to think about it, and that one thing, and, you know, it's cancer. And that's a powerful story when people you know, in our lives, you know, my, my mother as well, you know, was a cancer survivor, and you realize that's not something you want, right? You don't want to grow that forever, and, and so, so when you're trying to say that our end game is something different, we want that safe climate. We want the thriving, flourishing society. We want the social equity. You can't keep thinking that the same exact system that we've been using for 50 years that delivered all the injustice, the inequality, the inequity, the environmental challenges, could suddenly magically produce an entirely different outcome. And I think that this is what we have to kind of struggle with. Growth is great. If you're trying to grow the qualities that make life worth living, again, back to that Kennedy reference, but if we keep thinking that we can eat nature, keep extracting, keep extracting, keep polluting, keep, and have this magical different outcome, then we are delusional, as our founder loves to say very Mm -hmm. often.
0: We'll put a pin in it there. That concludes our first segment. Once again, that was Yannick Baudouin and Michelle Molnar from the David Suzuki Foundation. You're listening to a special episode in partnership with the David Suzuki Foundation. I'd like to focus a segment on the transition toward a well-being oriented society and communities that are leading on this front. What does the economics behind a transition towards sustainable and just societies look like? I don't think there's no one model, but
1: I think they all probably carry some similar principles. So I would say a first principle would be ensuring that that we stay within planetary boundaries, recognizing that our ecosystems, our planet, provides us with the foundational life-supporting, life-affirming things that we need. And then second, looking towards a socially just economy. So how do we recognize these planetary boundaries in a way that promotes uh, social justice? And then lastly, concerning ourselves with efficiencies. So, so I would put that as the third piece and really promote the idea that they kind of follow that order. But what that looks like is, is going to be different from community to community.
2: Yeah, I think building on that is exactly once you've identified the non-negotiables. Right. So what is it that when you want social justice and ecological limits, those are the non-negotiables. Everything else then becomes nuanced and negotiable. Right. So how you go from place to place to define what well-being is is open to you as long as you're not transacting those non-negotiables. And then it turns into a process. Right. We don't want to repeat necessarily what led us to this particular system, which was very top down, driven by a very small number of people. Now we have the abilities, both technologically and how interconnected we are and the ability to know what's going on anywhere in Canada and even any given moment, uh, using the Internet, for example, to start co-creating these new systems. So once you have your your kind of vision of what that means for you as a society, then you can start kind of reverse engineering back to all the, the, the things that might need to be done to get there.
0: What are some examples of communities or countries at large that have started to prioritize well-being?
1: Yeah, so I think New Zealand <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is an obvious one. But, but Yannick, you have a fair bit of experience in Bhutan.
2: Yeah. No, uh, Bhutan was—I spent uh, a month in, in in Bhutan. For those of you who don't know, it's a kingdom in the uh, Himalayas near Nepal. So this is one of the societies that never compiled GDP. They don't measure it. They never have. Uh, others do it for them, of course, because you can't be outside the system. Uh, but in Bhutan, they use a, a way of measuring economic performance called gross national happiness which is always fascinating usually in my interactions in Europe or even here as soon as you bring in the word happiness you kind of get this the this look ha 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 yes so you know and it's like well i guess you don't want happiness and it's like well no 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 we we want happiness but that word seems to kind of not jive well with people originally but they've been doing this for over about 15 20 years very robust way of measuring it it's not copy pastable. Right? it's not something that you can just say. Oh, what if Canada goes, you know, gross national happiness? It just proves that if you want to do something differently, you absolutely can as a society. And I think that was my big lesson learned from my time in Bhutan.
0: Michelle, you mentioned that New Zealand has started this transition. What exactly is New Zealand doing for our listeners that that aren't sure?
1: I feel like Yannick can i <laughs> really elaborate on that. You know, I, I know that they've recognized this as a process, so so good on them. They have started broadening out GDP to simply be a measure of monetary mm. uh, accumulation and start to, to think about the environment. Mental health was a really big push with this first year of their budget. Yeah, and maybe I'll turn it over to you too. To yeah, I mean, it's
2: basically that. like you just said, There's there's a bit of a five-year plan to sort of how this would frame over time. Uh, The first uh, attempt was May 30th this year when they looked at well-being deficits, and they identified two in particular, Mm -hmm. domestic violence and child poverty. Um, So those are very social at the moment. The idea is eventually to look into environmental ecological deficits and, and move that in. Fundamentally, what it means is their national budget is is no longer measured only by how much how many jobs are created and how much domestic product is created it really is pushing that definition to a new direction it's a step it's not a complete step but it's that first step that the prime minister there was able to take in a coalition minority government which is something we can learn in Canada mm-hmm. um, and that I think is is an indication again a very A big indication that politicians are getting tired of playing that catch-up. They're not understanding why they were. And now they start to realize this is what it's about. We're not looking at well-being. We were too obsessed with looking at domestic product.
0: Although these systems aren't a copy-paste solution, like economics doesn't work that way. You can't do exactly what you're doing in one country and implement it in another country and it worked perfectly. Mm -hmm. However, there are takeaways from uh, Bhutan and New Zealand that Canada can look uh, to integrate when we're thinking about well-being. What are some of those lessons from Bhutan and New Zealand that we could start to consider
1: So I'll start. We've found studies over time across different countries and and cultures to reveal very similar things that are are significant and important to us. So you think about the end-of-life surveys, right? What, What do people say was really significant to them, you know, at the end of their lives? And it's not... It's, it's <laughs> very rarely, um, you know, a wish that they made an extra $10,000 a year. It's generally about the social connections they made. It's generally about the contributions they made to their society and their communities. It's generally about um, their health, these sorts of things. And it can even be, you know, things about taking a longer view on uh, on things I think we have a very short view in our decision making right now and and kind of broadening that would be really important and feeling like your life and your work has has purpose and meaning I think those those are some of the key the key ones that come out and uh, and what they look like from society to society can be can be a little different but I think I think all of those kind of, key drivers are there across societies and cultures.
2: Yeah, and that word purpose is really powerful there. I mean, we did a couple of town halls over the last year uh, through the David Suzuki Foundation, and it was interesting to see when you asked the question, what's the purpose of Canada's economy today, And, and there were no answers in the room, and then you just tweaked it, and you said, well, what would you like it to be? And suddenly the answers came, and they were all very similar, the qualities, the connections, a very... You know the, the, this thing about being human, and suddenly that was the answer. So, a it was an interesting insight to realize no one really knows what the purpose of the gain economy is today, um, but they do know what they would like that purpose to be.
0: What were some of those answers that you got at that town hall meeting?
2: Yeah, it was again very similar to the like end of life surveys again, where you're seeing you know the caring, love, compassion, fulfillment was a big one, right? I want to feel like I'm I'm worth something, that I'm contributing somehow, that I'm you know, so, so all of those, and these were all very positive town halls, right? Everyone was out there. Yeah, you know, I want, we, we don't just want to live longer, we want to live better, right? That was interesting, that subtlety as well. And so people were coming at it from a a point of inspiration when they were when you were asking them, well, what would you know? We live 80 years on the you know, on the planet. Uh, is it really nine to five working for a pension meant to be our purpose? And apparently not. Right. The answers were all pretty unequivocal that it wasn't, and it was independent of where your politics might be. So the politics might come in when you think, well, how do we get there? Sure. But everybody seemed, for sure, to want these universal truths. And they're also very cross-cultural truth. All the places I've worked in the world, those basic answers tend to be the same.
0: If we have the same basic answers across a lot of different societies around the world, what might be the real roadblocks to having a system that values a longer-term vision or that is prioritizing these qualities?
1: I think our current system really elevates individualistic types of thinking and pursuits, whereas we've noticed all of these qualities are very collective. So definitely one, that's one roadblock. Another block is over time, our decision making and our thinking, and not to harp on this, has been very short term. It's been very quantitative, as opposed to to qualitative measures. Those are big ones that, that jump out at me
2: as you asked the question, I was thinking of a quote from Alan Greenspan after he retired. Alan Greenspan was the head of the Federal Reserve in the United States for quite a long time. And after he retired, he was saying, somebody was asking about that, the pursuits, the economic pursuits. He's like, well, it's not that we've become necessarily more greedy as human beings, but we've increased the pathways to express that greed. And, and I think that's the short-terminism, the material, where we think our status and our, somehow our, our recognition in society is still based on how much you accumulate. The problem with that is you don't stop accumulating because you always have to outdo the next person. And if you're a country... Than a nation against a nation, and you're seeing this perpetual uh, recreation of, well, the, if my numbers are bigger than your numbers, we must obviously be doing, doing well. And I think that's now cracking. There's starting to be some pretty clear cracks in the mm-hmm. wall about, is that all we're here for? You know, as countries, all the way down to as individuals, and even as companies. Is, is that all a company is, making profit, making money, or can it be more than that?
0: So I could pick both of your brain about this for a very long time, but I think for the sake of time, we're going to conclude our second segment. So stay tuned to hear about how Canada can transition to a well-being economic system moving forward. In Canada, we want to meet the sustainable development goals and become a global environmental leader. Our intent is there, but the outcomes just don't match. Why do you think that is?
2: So maybe I'll start off with a anecdote. <laughs> the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, very interesting kind of story. I mean, I was uh, involved early on before they were called SDGs, so back in my UN, my United Nations days. And one of the key elements we were trying to kind of battle with when it came to the language was SDG 8, number 8, uh, which today is uh, in- Inclusive Economic Growth and we had been working with the Nordic Council, we again, my previous UN life, not, not with David Suzuki Foundation, but just to change that one word from growth to progress. That was the propositions going through. And we lost, obviously. And so from that perspective, that incompatibility you kind of talk about, that the outcomes don't match. So it's like having a paradox embedded in the SDGs. You have all these biospheric goals And the biosphere, you know, clean water, clean air, you know, healthy uh, land and and healthy oceans, those are non-negotiable. You can't transcend them. You can't negotiate with the planet and suddenly, well, what if you give us 1.8 planet? Come on, planet, you can do it. You can't. This is done. That's the outer sphere of the SDGs that cannot be transacted, the ecological limits, Michelle was talking about. Inside that, you have society. So society, all the goals, the SDG goals around society are in there. Those are negotiable right? Those are culturally nuanced. Those are our stories. Those are all the different approaches we might have. And really in the middle only of all that is this thing we call the material economy. So SDG 8 should be tiny, teeny, tiny in the middle and fully negotiable uh, or transformable. And that's sort of how the SDGs should be pictured if you were respecting the laws of physics and the laws of nature. So the fact that we're still kind of, you know, in Canada, yes, there's an intent to reach these things called the SDGs, both nationally, so domestically, because we are by far not reaching those even, you know, I walk to work in the morning, lots of homeless people in Toronto, and supposedly we're a rich country. Interesting, SDGs not met, let alone trying to do that and help in the world, right? And that's because of that paradox, you have all these separate pieces. They're all kind of laid out into a little box with all their little squares. And there's no hierarchy when there actually is a hierarchy, right? And so I think this is where, you know, embedded in that system, if we can't solve those paradoxes, if we can't call the surface that, that our economic policies are preventing us from actually reaching uh, these yeah. social and environmental goals – Then again, we're kind of delusional.
1: Yeah, and maybe I'll I'll jump in there. There's many reasons for that gap between what we want and what we have. One of the driving and and the fundamental reasons is that our economy doesn't recognize many of the benefits uh, we get from nature. So clean water... You know what we pay um, when you pay your water bill. It's not the water. It's it's the pipes that transform it there. It's it's the infrastructure costs to get it there. But there's no value on the actual resource, and that's a, a common example amongst many, many aspects of the services we receive from nature. So we have this great set of aspirational goals, and we have some policies here and there to address it, but what's happening is it's not being recognized in our economic system, which is being prioritized over over some of those goals. So the fact that it's not incorporated in our economic system is creating a huge roadblock to meeting them.
0: In Canadian politics, we use language like middle-class prosperity rather than well-being. Why isn't well-being on the agenda? Or is the Canadian government trying to get at well-being in using the term middle-class prosperity?
2: I mean, I already found the word class being interesting, right? So why do we still have classes? And those are economically defined, right? So median GDP, per capita GDP. Oh, you're in this class, you're in that class. The level of income you have, that class or this class. Already, that's a telltale sign to me that something's wrong, right? Where we're s- literally still separating each other in classes as a society. And so, you know, when, when you're trying to think about why do we still do that, s- to me, it's simplicity, right? It's very, very simple to pigeonhole and put little categories around our quantities, whereas well-being is much more complex. But hey, life is complex. Being human is messy, right? So the economic system of today, that you know, was invented in the 1940s, is based on again not having any humans because they were kind of messy. Why, why bother putting them in the system? We could just put these inanimate object called labor in there. Well, at the end of the day, once again, the things that are that make us who we are, that make us irrational, like why does Yannick buy the five dollar Skippy peanut butter instead of the two dollar No Name peanut butter? That makes no economic sense. Well, you know, I love Skippy peanut butter. Sorry, we're not supposed to put little advertising for Skippy (laughs) but you know what I mean. So I think it's it's this nuance where, you know, governments are still in this position where simplicity seems to be the best way. But I have to admit, it's starting to crack. There's an understanding now that complexity not only is obviously how life is, is, how we do it, but also we do have the abilities now through technology, through other means to actually potentially, Manage that, to understand the qualitative, to somehow bring it into play and make decisions on that.
0: Based on your experiences working with and collaborating with decision makers, do you think that well being is a scary word for Canadian policymakers? It's
1: interesting. So I can speak to my work more with local governments, and, and Yannick probably can with some higher levels of government. I find local governments are the closest to the land and the closest to the people. So I do find them to be much more aggressive and much more willing to start to consider these broader aspects. And And I'll give you a very concrete example. So I do some work with a group group called the Municipal Natural Assets Initiative, of which DSF is is a board member on. And we work with communities now, I think it's 15 across Canada, to recognize natural assets into their asset management system. From a very, you know, kind of nearsighted perspective, you, you might say, well... Yes, nature can reduce costs when you recognize it as uh, as a form of infrastructure as as providing those services that local governments need to provide. So so maybe it's, you know, it's mitigating flooding, it's reducing erosion, it's, you know, and it's it's less expensive to maintain that, but what they're recognizing is that it also provides this broad range of other benefits, right? In climate adaptation, climate mitigation, health outcomes for communities, recreation, social connections. so the more and more we work with them to start to recognize it and integrate it into their financial and asset management programs, um, they're starting to see it as um, you know as, as something much broader than just infrastructure. Um, so so I would say, you know, definitely, and, and I recognize, you know, it's it's a small but growing group of communities um, that those local governments that we're working with are are starting to to really catch on to this and and it's starting to cause a lot of excitement in the communities we're working with.
2: Yeah and I would say exactly like you said, there's is that palpable difference between the local decision maker and then maybe that further distanced from the context that you might see when you're dealing at the federal level. And so sometimes being able to make that personalized connection on the issues. So a lot of the conversations I have with the federal government has been exploring the connection of the individuals with their own lives, for example, how they might go about dealing with issues within their households to sort of help make that connection that it's not an abstract. It's not an aggregated thing with just a bunch of Excel sheets. That's not Canada. If we all agree that that's not Canada, then how can you start moving on pathways that may initially seem a bit scary? You know, if you're starting uh, as a policymaker trying to get into the space on advising on these interconnected systems, these nuanced qualities and things like that, you kind of like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Like, you know, I just want my Excel spreadsheet back. Can't you give me my Excel spreadsheet? And then you're like, okay, well, don't worry. You know, we're gonna we're gonna work with you on this. It's not an Excel spreadsheet. These are people. This is an environment. This is nature. Right, So how do you start kind of putting that together in a new frame, in a new narrative? And not a narrative that the foundation comes up with, but a narrative the foundation kind of creates the space where we can come up with that together. So my experience right now in Canada, and I was away from Canada for 15 years, so I just came back a year and a half ago, I'm seeing again those really positive cracks in the wall. The questions that are now being asked by some senior policy advisors and policy analysts I feel, are powerful questions and good questions, questions on the right path, that if we can start answering that together, OK, you know, well, it's, it's not enough that we're just looking at it from a domestic product lens. Is there another lens out there? Oh, wow, that's a great question. OK, let's, let's dig into that. So I think there's starting to be this kind of opening, a desire to learn more and to not be as afraid of these more kind of grander concepts of well-being. What does it actually mean to, to have a country generating well-being? And I think because of leadership of some countries, like New Zealand, again, Scotland, Iceland, then Canada has something to point to. Okay, I'm curious about what they're doing. And, and then how can we help make those conversations happen?
0: Yannick, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about what you were talking about in terms of framing. Why is it important to frame the environmental movement in a certain way, comparatively to just presenting people with facts about what's going on?
2: No, I mean, that's a powerful question that probably the whole sector as a whole, uh, and even ourselves, we kind of struggle with sometimes. How do you How do you make sure you're you're founding your communication pieces on the knowledge, on the science, but not necessarily repeating the numbers and the science in your narratives? People, as all human beings, we make decisions and choices and changes mainly from our emotional centers, our intuitive centers, and actually not that often from our, our rational brain centers, right? So somehow you have to be able to connect, you know, it's not just an ecosystem service, it's nature. It's not just a quantitative piece here, it's a qualitative change there. How do you meet people where they actually are? Is a a challenge is a lot more complex than just coming up with a, a very specific, maybe more linear communication strategy, you're moving into values. Uh, and that is unpredictable. So it can be also scary when you're trying to move into the value side of things. So I think when we're looking at, you know, finding the right words, like I was saying earlier about happiness, gross national happiness, no one wants happiness, and moving it to gross national well-being, suddenly there's, oh, well, I I like well-being. I like that. What what do you mean by that? And that's what you want people to do, right? You, You don't want to answer the questions for them. You want to get into a conversation where questions are being asked. So I think framing becomes... Uh, Really important, but it also means it's a bigger risk sometimes for the environmental movement as well to sort of say, well, we have to sometimes get away from just repeating facts, always be based on facts, but how do you tell stories? And I think that's where we're starting to to see a bit of a, a shift in also, you know, the environmental movement or environmentalists, What's beyond that, right? We want to help enable change now. We want to help enable transformation. And that's not just necessarily then uh, on the numbers themselves, but telling the story behind those.
0: On the topic of transformation, what might Canada look like beyond our conventional measures of how we're doing, like GDP, those types of measures?
1: I think we'll be tracking things like our personal health. I think we'll be recognizing things like how involved we are in our communities, in our political systems. I think we'll be understanding and really encouraging and promoting connections between people. And, and I think there's metrics to get at all of those. So I think it'll be, it'll be much broader. We'll recognize and value time that people spend at home raising their kids, taking care of their elderly parents, cooking meals, getting outside. And that could look like anything, you know, from, from a range of metrics to job sharing to employee-owned organizations where employees feel like they have a stake and a say in, uh, in what they do from 9 to 5. You know, I, I think it's a range of things. But, Yannick, yeah, please feel free to jump in. And, <laughs> add and, more. Uh, add more, yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I come back to that word purpose again. If I'm picturing a decade down the road looking back – Canada's done some kind of a shift towards a well-being society. We have a purpose. And we've defined it together. Not, it's not my purpose, it's not, you know anybody. we've defined something together. We have a vision for the country. There's a horizon we want to reach. So I sort of see that being crystallized, which we don't really have today. And then when we move down into our personal lives, You know, everything's about productivity and performance today, and it's very quantitative. But, you know, David Suzuki Foundation, we've had a four-day work week for about 10 years now. Not a lot of groups and companies do that in in North America yet, but I can see that becoming the norm. What Do we value more, the 9 to 5 or the 10 hours you put in just for somebody else's quantitative measure? Or I guess is that old adage, do you work to live or do you live to work? Like, which one do you want? So I think you can also see how... Work itself can be transformed right down the road if you're generating well-being rather than domestic product. Even the purpose sometimes of money. What is money supposed to be representing? Money is just a construct. We created it We not even that long ago. It's a piece of paper. Is that piece of paper worth more than a stable climate? I don't think so. Is that piece of paper worth more than, oh, that person on the street having a home? I don't personally think so. And those are all constructs that we can start redefining and redesigning by, by moving into that space of well-being.
1: Yeah, and I think you'll see a broader range of people engaged, right? I think now we're very focused on who is the expert on X and Y, when uh, at the end of the day, moving into a well-being economy is really drawing upon everyone's unique skill sets and pieces of knowledge and uh, experiences.
0: When you two facilitate dialogues with decision makers on the topic of well-being, what do those conversations look like?
2: Part of it is also how you design the conversation space for me, right? If you go in and you're going to make a panel and you're going to have, like, microphones a bunch and make monologues, you're going to very get a very specific type of reaction, which is the standard kind of approach when you have mm-hmm. whether UN or government. Uh, I personally kind of try—I like stealing the microphones, Uh, I like making sure a room is set in kind of a knowledge circle, a sharing, where people actually have to look at each other. They're not protected by the cards that say that your role is this and your role is that. They're actually just having to have an honest conversation and making sure that I'm not the one trying to propose a specific course of action. So again, well-being isn't about my definition alone or someone else's definition alone. It is this collective piece, right? And you have to be able to see yourself in it. So with a lot of the ones I've done so far back in Canada, I've done many in Europe and Africa and Polynesia, when you're attuned to the kind of cultural context and and you don't make it about yourself, then you suddenly have really amazing unintended and unpredictable pieces that kind of come out and surface. And not only they get surfaced, then people own them. And they want to continue that down the line. So when I go to Ottawa, I like just, okay, look, I'm, I'm going to have an honest conversation with you. I'm not going to push some specific strategy or specific plan on well-being. But you you asked me here, so let's explore what well-being means to you, to you, to you, and, and see what we come up with. And then Maybe there'll be a second call, a second action, a second, and that's okay, right? You kind of build it up like that. So I think if we're also very attentive to the actual spaces we create for these conversations, that's when you get some of that magic and the unpredictability of, of, of raising the potential for something really transformative rather than a kind of static panel-based, microphone-based uh, yeah, place.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There will be awkward moments and you know when you start those conversations and that's okay. There will be um, a bit of messiness to it but I think the more people can start to see themselves in the outcomes I think the more we're willing to let go of owning a conversation or any outcomes at the end of the day the more productive they can be.
0: What makes you hopeful about our ability to tackle climate change?
1: I'm hopeful in the sense that we're seeing broader groups enter the conversation. So, of course, the youth movement right now, I think, is, is really important to hear their voices. I think absolutely the, the Indigenous, you know, we're starting to open up to the Indigenous voices um, to really just a broader range of, of perspectives is what makes me most hopeful about the conversation right now.
2: Yeah, I echo both of those. I mean, I just came back from the uh, week one of the Madrid Climate Conference, and I think for and that was my fifth climate conference. And what I've noticed for the first time is really the level of organization of both the youth and indigenous leadership, global indigenous leadership, seems to be reaching a point where where the amplification is so potent that I feel there's something disruptive in the makes. I don't know what, what it'll lead to, where it's going to go. But it's the first time in all the COPs I've been to that I've noticed that level of disruption potential being there, mainly because of that intergenerational approach for the youth, which then links into the deep wisdom and knowledge that the Indigenous communities, you know, the world over have always had when it comes to environment and social. So there's something there that's crossing over, that's leading to the process itself, hopefully being disrupted, but something's going to happen there.
0: I think that's a good note to leave off on. Thank you, you two, very much for collaborating with us at Beyond the Headlines for this special episode and sharing your knowledge with us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Yannick Beaudoin and Michelle Molnar for coming on the show. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Thank you to the David Suzuki Foundation for collaborating with us on this special episode and to my team at the Public Good Initiative for their help in putting this episode together. This show was produced by myself, Aaron Christensen, and Vienna Vindatelli. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producer, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you miss any part of the show, be sure to check it out on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google play. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with current policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond the Headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. <laughs> Oh sha la la la.